like those teacups and you can break us. <laughs> can, can we say daddy instead of like a gendered version? Instead of like daddy or mommy, we're gonna be like, hey daddy. I have unironically been called that. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yes. Hi Lucy, how are you? I'm fantasy come reality. I'm a sexy ass bitch coalesced from too much lingerie put on top of each other. Hi, Athena. She is making her return on season two, your first episode back. Hi, Athena from Marcus. Ooh, it's excited to be here. I've been preparing, getting ready, uh, reaching out, and uh, we look forward, really looking forward to the next season. Coming oh to you God. live from across the United States, it's the Trans Narrative Podcast. Yay! Yay. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so glad to have everyone here. How is everyone doing? pretty good all things considered you know <laughs> and you yeah. know i'm always fantasy come reality yes yes i love it i love it i love it so athena Primakis is here with us today they are here this is their first episode of season two. Oh my god welcome Ooh. athena hi how have you all been uh i heard last week's episode everything sounded great uh we've got a kind of a format to work with um, so we have a, a guest here that we brought. Uh, this is from somebody that I know locally that I've met personally and somebody that I think is uh, quite admirable. Uh, and they'll be joining us later on in the season as part of you know our hosts as well. We want to open up our uh, podcast to be a wider representation. I'm a majority minority, right? I'm a, I'm a subset of a majority group that is in itself a minority so the broader representation that we have the the better that uh the kinds of actions we need to take are, are demonstrated well it's so good to have everyone here today lucy so glad to have you athena it's so good to have you back on season two and we're sitting down today with torn riley bowen and Torn was brought to us by Athena. Athena had introduced uh, Torn to us here on the show. And we're so glad to finally get a chance to sit down with you. We've talked a few times before the show, and it was truly wonderful conversations, and I truly cherished it. And I'm really glad to have you here today. So, Torn, welcome to the Trans Narrative Podcast. Glad to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you so much. So, Torn... Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, to shorten down my story to a palatable length, um, I was born and raised here in Missouri. I've lived here my whole life. My mother is white and my father is indigenous. Um, he is a disconnected indigenous man, unfortunately, due to circumstances surrounding his childhood. Um, I was raised around my mother's very Baptist family, so grew up with a lot of uh, religious trauma lots of doubts, definitely very, very constricted upbringing, very restricted in what I was allowed to do, things such as that. Um, from a young age, I knew that something was different. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't have the words to describe what it was. Um, once I had the words, you know, once I learned the words queer and trans, it kind of made things click more. And that was in my preteen years. But being in the family that I was in, I didn't have an avenue to explore those things. So instead, I repressed them, especially after age 15. I had jokingly said to my mother that my life would be so much easier if I was a man. And she said, well, if you ever came out as one of those T slurs, I would kick you out of the house. 
So lots of years of repression, um, string of not good relationships, including one failed marriage that ended up being an abusive situation. I met my now husband, got comfortable, life was going good, and then 2020 hit. And it hit like a train. And there I was stuck with nothing really to do, stuck in the house every day, having to think about these things. And finally, I was like, fuck it, went, shaved my head, put on some of my husband's clothes, looked in the mirror, and it was like, oh, that's actually me. I can actually like see myself now. Had a very emotional talk with him, going into it fully expecting to end up divorced, but that was not the case. We are still together very happily. Obviously, the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter protests happened after the death of George Floyd. Um, I got pulled into the activist circles in my local area and helped with organizing protests. Ended up being a very stressful, scary summer. Besides dealing with police and white supremacist groups, I also dealt with stalking. And of course, as a transgender person, I didn't feel comfortable going to the cops and being like, hey someone is stalking me. And parallel with all of this happening, uh, my health was deteriorating. Um, finally got health insurance again at the end of 2021, spent all of 2022 to find out, going to various doctors to find out that I have a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It will likely not get better. There are things that I can do to make life more tolerable, but it's not something that has a cure. It's just a bunch of symptom management. And for me, a good day, I can get up, walk, no issues. On a bad day, I'm in my wheelchair, wheeling around the house or in bed. And disabled people are born with their their bodies on the line. And it's not necessarily even for a cause. But speaking up for that is really important. And especially within these majority minority uh, groups, as you know, uh, queer representation becomes more available and more more viable for everyone. We need to make sure that our spaces are safe for everyone. And, and Torin, uh, would you like to speak a bit about that? I've been disabled my whole life. It's just a fact of the matter. It's nothing bad. Um, it did take me several years to reach that mindset, though, just with my own upbringing, especially in the Bible Belt Midwest. There's a whole lot of we'll pray for you. Oh, it'll get better. But, you know, that's just not a reality with my genetic conditions. Activism has been a big part of my life. 2020 was a wild summer for me. That was where I really dove headfirst into activism. And it's gone from there to... Also from Black Lives Matter to indigenous rights to disability rights. All of these are very important things to me. And yeah, I wanted to come on today and talk a little bit about, you know, being disabled in the queer community and the trans community and how that's been for me. And, you know. And, and there's kind of a way in, in which these statuses sort of stack and uh, we were kind of talking about how, how like some of the ways that we have to make safe uh, spaces for people are about autonomy of choices and restricting people's availability of choices uh, mm -hmm. or, or opening up availability of choices. You provided some great resources to kind of help people who are uh, planning and organizing spaces and things like that. 
to, to identify with. And we want to supply that, that in our show notes here to make sure that people who are listening know how to, to uh, filter out. So uh, do you have any experiences you'd like to share just about what might have been something exclusive to you or, or excluding uh, of you from a space or an event? Uh, so first off, I am an autistic person. I also have ADHD and PTSD. Uh, along with that, I do struggle with an addictive personality. It's very par for the course being autistic and having ADHD, as well as my own genetic background. Um, it's There have been times where events have been very poorly planned, I guess, if we're just going to be really blunt and honest about it, where the capacity is not what it needs to be. So you've got people on top of people, very close, very loud. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about with accessibility is there are those who can't do loud noises, who can't tolerate, you know, very crowded spaces. They need the ability to, you know, have space, have a quiet place to go to, that sort of thing. And with my physical disabilities, uh, admittedly, I've only been to a couple of different Pride events because of my physical disabilities. Uh, also, where Athena and I live is not the most friendly place. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so one of the Pride events that I attended, I love the organizers. They are great people. I don't think that they meant anything by it. But the location that the event was held at was not very accessible to those who use mobility age, such as myself. Uh, I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. I also use a rollator walker on some days. Um, and I cannot imagine even using my wheelchair at that event with where it was held because it was on uneven ground. It was on a grassy field, which is not very wheelchair friendly. Um it was barely walker friendly. I, I was definitely struggling and I know that I was not the only one there struggling to walk through the area. Yeah, I, I had actually helped several people set up tents who were um, uh, elderly or disabled, various statuses like that. And uh, being able to, to put myself on, on the line for that is as great as part of being an ally, just but making the event spaces safer in the first place mm -hmm. at an organizational level, it's it's an awareness that, of course, is really important. Uh, we can only make certain steps from the, the bottom to help accommodate people. And I, I obviously want to do that as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, but making sure that you have the option of a place to go to and a way to operate within that. Uh, we have a lot of uh, digital spaces where that's so much more mm -hmm. accessible to us. And that's yes. becoming a lot easier to uh, accommodate for. Um, do you have any recommendations as far as like how maybe we can hybridize events to allow more accessibility to people? Uh, well, first of all, a big thing would be obviously for our nonverbal and non-hearing siblings uh, to have translators who use ASL, you know, possibly have translators in different languages as well, if you're able to do that, just so that it's accessible for more people in that way as well. Um, for hybrid events, uh, I wish that more events were hybrid events, to be honest. That way, people who are immunocompromised and still aren't going out with the pandemic, for people who are not able to leave their homes for whatever reason, would still be able to listen to these speakers and 
see what the offerings are that are there and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, it's going to depend on the type of event that you have, but even if it's just offering online for people to be able to listen to speakers, that would be a huge step in accessibility, you know, for, as I said, our immunocompromised siblings, people who aren't able to physically leave their home for whatever reason, be that agoraphobia, social anxiety, any of those Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, like um, part of that that we have to be more aware of is like immunocompromised people and Mm -hmm. how we interact with them. We become a lot more aware with the outbreak of COVID and the ease of most people of wearing a mask and the tantrums that people put trying to get out of it. Uh, I mean, it it, it doesn't seem as fair. Yes, it's very sad. I've even on the more left side of things, I have seen a lot of people who are being very dismissive of our ongoing pandemic and of our immunocompromised siblings who are trying to spread awareness and be like, hey, please wear masks, please social distance, please have a little care for others who are not as privileged or who are not, you know, don't have a working immune system because there are so many different reasons that you can be immunocompromised. Some people are just born that way. And it seems like asking the bare minimum to be like, hey, even if it's outside, can you wear a mask? If it's inside, please require masks or offer an online option. And I may be a bit of an odd duck, but I have continued safe safe practices of wearing masks indoors, even yep. at work, except whenever, you know, it's around a group of people that I'm living with, et cetera, things like that. Yes. I have always just main, maintained that discipline. It hasn't been difficult for me, even when I'm the only person in the building of 100 people or whatever. It doesn't feel awkward to me. And I still get people come up to me and thank me. And, you know, the people who are elderly and sick mm-hmm. or, or disabled, uh, it's it's important to me to make sure that those voices are heard because like the way that life has uh, already uh, made things so difficult for them, uh, it's it's got to be a part of our conversation to uh, allow and boost those voices. It's, it's hard for all of us to be heard in our own way. Um, mm-hmm. But some of us like really were, were born and set aside and then marginalized and then resources were detracted from them Uh, as much as we'd like to put uh, opportunities into like special education programs Mm -hmm. uh, they don't always come up to like good outcomes or you know the kinds Mm -hmm. of resources we try and put into disabilities are often squandered in their allocation Um, yes yeah there's all kinds of ways that we can criticize this but part of it is just having the the first awareness of of that Mm -hmm. um we want to have like a broader uh, availability of uh, and visibility of, of our uh, uh, disabled uh, people in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a lot of it also is there. there is a masking element to disability too, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously not comfortable to necessarily communicate with people when it's absolutely, it's not necessary. But I, I work with my voice. And so over the phone, I communicate with people who are visually impaired who mm-hmm. don't let me know that when it's very important that like that's part of what we're doing is we're looking through some mm-hmm. features or something like that. Is there anything you'd like to uh, maybe help to to make it an easier ask for us or to uh, help uh, say something for, for disabled people to not feel uncomfortable and providing that information for people who are who need that? 
Uh, I know that for myself, as a disabled person, I often will not disclose my disabled status to people, um, largely just because of the stigma that there is. There is still a large stigma in our society against disabled people, people with disabilities of many kinds. You know, you still get the comments of, oh, but you're so young. Oh, but you act so normal. And people don't understand that these statements are very casually ableist. And honestly, I, it's a really deeply rooted issue. And I'm not entirely sure what steps we're going to need to take to unroot that but even if it's just changing your language or you know changing how you treat people you know if you see someone using a mobility aid in public don't stare at them things such as that it's these little things that people don't really think about if you're not part of a community these microaggressions that have really like compacted that And a lot of times also when you're disabled, you don't really think about having to explain things to other people because it's just your reality. And there are so many people who are able-bodied who don't have these struggles. So for me, like, I've surprised a lot of healthcare professionals because they always ask you, what's your pain level on a scale of 1 to 10? And I'm like, well, on my scale, I'm at a 1, but on your scale, that would be like a 4. Have you ever I, seen that uh, pain and distress levels? Yes. Uh, add, add that in like, yeah, it's a five, but I'm used to it. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's <laughs> I've had to explain that to so many people, even medical professionals, where it's like, yes, I'm in pain, but this is my normal state of being a good day for me. I'm at a three, a bad day f- on your scale, a bad day for me. I'm at an eight or a nine on your scale but I still make myself do things. Oh, I just straight out just say 10 every time. <laughs> uh, I know, like, I could be like, I'm I'm at a 1. They'll be like, here's some Tylenol. Here's, I'm at a 10. Here's some Tylenol. Yeah, and that's, like, a, that's a whole other beast. Like, obviously, we've had the opioid crisis in America that is yeah. still ongoing. But part of that also is fueled by there not being easy access to true pain management. And it unfortunately has harmed people who need chronic pain medication yeah. to where now they can't access those things. The problem, well, I think, a lot of times is prescribing what are what were indicated at first as being short term relief as being long term prescriptive aids where their efficacy just drops almost entirely and so you wind up with these massive mm-hmm. amounts or, or different kinds of chemicals that uh, are really just just going to end your life they they are designed to be like life ending medicine and medicines at that mm-hmm. point because they're only into the levels of addiction that you get into is is to you know suffocate from it so to speak well and it would be well, that, helpful there's a racial element too for mm-hmm. a lot of is i've like when i um when I was in a car accident and I I had some hairline fractures in locations that should have made it very painful for me to walk. And it did the, uh, you know, there was a white doctor. He basically told me I'll be okay. Gave me some, um, uh, what was it? Some Tylenol. And he prescribed Tylenol. I'm sweating in pain and I can't move on the, the, the bed because I was brought in uh, via an ambulance and like it took a black nurse to walk by and be like you still look like you're incredible amounts of pain like yes 
I am sweating profusely from this pain. And they're like, let me get a black doctor. And the black doctor was like, oh, yeah, you should have had, like, looking at your x-rays, you should have had, like, Dilaudid or morphine. Yep. Prescribed it. I, I'm, luck I'm lucky enough to be white passing, so I don't have that struggle myself. But I have watched it with my father, who is indigenous. Yep. Um, doctors handle him differently, you know, outside of society handling him differently because he is not white passing. Um, the way that they have handled his pain management and also his own stubborn ass personality, he very rarely will receive or get pain medications. It took him seeing a non-white doctor for them to finally yep. prescribe him muscle relaxers for a chronic issue when he had broken his neck when he was younger and constantly gets tension headaches. Yeah, they'll they normally see it as like a oh you're just you're just seeking medicine and it's like well, yeah but pain to you is because I'm in pain oh no 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 we think you're probably like addicted to it and it's like you have a database that spans the entirety of of the United States like mm -hmm. you can see I'm not in this please prescribe me something for my pain and, oh no 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 I literally had that happen where a doctor's like well you know um. I would prescribe you something, but I, I can't because it might be seen as um, uh, opioid seeking. And I'm like, I was just in a car accident. Like, I've been yep. in a lot of car accidents in my life, as well as been in the jail several times in my life. And it's just the norm. They're just like, oh, no, I can't get this. Whereas my white friend at, at my work is like, oh, yeah, my knees hurt. So, like, I just went to the doctor and they gave me, like, a uh, choice between Tramadol and Vicodin. And I'm like, wow, that, that's got to be nice. Yes. It, it's... It's honestly bullshit. I'm not even going to try and sugarcoat it. It's bullshit, and it's another one of those things that's baked into the system. Our, especially our BIPOC siblings in the disabled community, it's not fair the struggles that they have to go through to get the same amount of care that our white siblings get. And it's not talked about enough. And if it is talked about, then you have our white siblings, I'll use that term loosely to be nice, talking over BIPOC people who are saying, hey... I have this issue too, but I have not received the same amount of care that you have because of my race. And people are like, oh, no, that's not part of the issue. But it is part of the issue because yeah. it is fundamentally well, part of the issue. All of us are frustrated with the healthcare system for our own reasons. Yes. And we let our own struggles overwrite the struggles of others and not mm -hmm. tune into it. I have trouble getting some of the healthcare that I want and in a timely fashion mm -hmm. and directing the doctor to listen to me as well but not as much as, as someone else with a different skin color, not as yeah. much as somebody else uh, with a, a different ethnicity or, or background. But just even sometimes your name will get you down the list of, oh, yeah. of your yes. yeah, care providers and things like that. It, it's discrimination is, is not always, you know, the CRT required. You don't have to have critical race theory to see people mm -hmm. being actively bigoted and uh, discriminatory in their behavior. Absolutely. So like all they're trying to do is like uh, take away the ways in which we can examine these structural mm -hmm. systems that are built up. So it's, it's very frustrating. All of these kind of, like I say, stack in minority statuses and mm -hmm. they, a lot of times will derive from the concept of autonomy and we, denied autonomy completely for from uh you know the african-americans 
uh, enslaving them and from Native Americans uh, pushing them through genocide and even currently uh, marginalizing through the reservation system and, and preventing mm -hmm. them from getting the kind of research or from, from using the land that was their inheritance to begin with. Um, how do we uh, how do we make make a better argument uh, to move forward and to allow people those autonomies that were denied and to show people that it is the right thing to do to acknowledge like what kind of basic empathy do we have to teach well, you know the some... fundamental level of trust in in that mm -hmm. autonomy for other people we we say like doctors don't prescribe us things because we might misuse them or abuse them or become addicted but we're more denying those people from historically the same people we've always denied autonomy to. Mm -hmm. And now in like the bigger constructions of the law, they want to un basically out write out that part that says that we should have autonomy that's granted through the rights that were granted to the slaves. Those were all enumerated in some sense for us, rights to autonomy. So uh, there's a big picture about like a civil rights you know, movement being structured upon these rights of the individual and the right for autonomy and participation in family and groups of your choosing too. And, and that's the bigger part here is it's kind of like moving to that when it's on a doctrine at individual level, they don't see that necessarily they're, they're looking at this person different from mm -hmm. that person that's mm -hmm. subconsciously baked in. But if they just look at the request and try and actually strip themselves out of the context of that situation and just look at it as a question of, do I trust this person with their autonomy? I think that would probably be a good answer for a lot of doctors who maybe have trouble seeing past color. Even not just doctors, but to nurses as well, because we all know that mean girl from high school who ended up being who is now a nurse. And you're just like, honey, you ain't got no business being a nurse. <laughs> yeah, but there. I agree with what you said that there needs to be changes made to where people view it more as an autonomy issue and people need to look past their own personal biases. But then it, it's hilarious to me because the people who want to outlaw the things that would help teach against these biases are also the people who cry about masks and vaccines and bodily autonomy, but they don't want to award that to other people. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they, it is very much an autonomy for me and not for thee. It is a bought and paid for autonomy, not one guaranteed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah. And that's one that is definitely going to be more and more seen as a privilege to have the right to access your body in certain ways or to prescribe mm -hmm. certain chemicals. But we also have maybe, you know, some other other ways to be more conscientious of the way we use chemicals around others as well and things like that. Mm -hmm. For people who are like uh, sensitive to addiction and uh, how we treat alcohol, how very common it is to have like, you know, addictions, addictive substances in public. Uh, Missouri yes. just passed uh, medical marijuana and a ye couple of years ago, and now they've passed recreational marijuana. Yeah, uh, we've got certain people who will still be uh, allergic to that as, as much as a miracle drug. It's been for my life. I absolutely love it, but it's done for my mood and my ability to sleep. I Same. still have to be conscientious more of, you know, if, if I'm going to be using that. Uh, I don't want to necessarily be like blowing it in people's faces. I wouldn't want yeah. to like, you know, yes. <laughs> force alcohol down people's you know, throats either. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually had my first experience as a disabled person. It's actually been, I live in a lower money bracket. You know, I'm not able to work as much as the normal person is able to throw on the fact that I have two children. Childcare is outrageously expensive. 
Uh, I was not able to get myself a medical card whenever it became available in Missouri because of the price. And also the wait lists are horrendous. <laughs> so now that recreational is available, I'm able to buy my medicine without having to go through all of that rigmarole. And I had a very terrible experience at the dispensary that I would go to because of that. And long story short, someone who had a medical card decided that he was better than everybody else who was in line to buy recreational that day. And he was very rude and said explicit at us and called me a fucking bitch and misgendered me repeatedly. And he was permanently banned from the store. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's progress of its own kind, I guess. You're excluding people but, who are toxic from the space. Uh, I, as you said, there are people who avoid substances. My father was an alcoholic from age 15 to age 30. So I myself avoid alcohol consumption. Um, I'm not against it if other people want to do it, but I ask that they respect my boundaries uh, I'm not a big fan of all of the pride events that are focused around partying and drinking, and I just feel like there's space for us to be a little more conscientious. I'm not saying do away with it completely, but there should be like conscientious effort made to be like, hey, we are sober friendly. No one's going to pressure you to drink or, hey, there's a cutoff of like, one or two drinks at this event so we're not getting anybody absolutely sloshed and acting a fool well a lot of it is that it's sometimes the only way to provide a safe space is to monetize it somehow mm -hmm. and it's really unfortunate like just an extension of our capitalist system if you want to have a safe space for a marginalized group of people you have to make the, it's a bar venue yes. the bar will protect you and house you but you have to have like a true drink minimum these kinds of things mm -hmm. and uh, queers queer people don't have the church they don't they don't have that here they might have a unitarian universalist church to like rent out mm -hmm. if they're lucky enough in their small town but they don't have a safe space to gather and be together without mm -hmm. an expectation of being over 21 uh you know there's hopefully going to be you know a space in which we move into where it's just going to be accepted that we don't have to have safe or protected spaces but that's going to take a long time in these backwoods places yes and yeah. i think <laughs> go ahead oh i was just gonna say out here one of the good things is um we actually have uh gay cafes mm -hmm. Uh, it used to be like a speakeasy back in the Estriander, so like there's actually like hidden compartments that you can access through once mm -hmm. you're in. But because it's become so ubiquitous to have like a, a gay bar or a queer bar, they're like, well, we don't. Some of us don't want alcohol, so we've actually like they they did like a crowdfunding to get a whole bunch of money together to make these gay cafes, and it's like yeah a place as well as you know they they still have like to some people it's weird that they have a measure of protection but it's like mm -hmm. in the same age you kind of need it and it, it does give that and that's one of the reasons why I like the bigger cities which definitely not uh saying that oh you know if you want protection go to a big city like that, mm -hmm. that never be the fucking case ever yes um you should be able to be protected wherever you go um but that's one of the reasons why i dread like my work was asking me like hey do you want to go out to arizona um and manage the site there and it's like 
No, I know you see that as an upgrade where I get a big pay raise, but like my level of safety would drop drastically. Yes. Um, safe places out there are alcohol related. And as somebody who no longer drinks, it's like, that's not for me. Yep, uh, I understand that completely. And as you said, we should be safe wherever we live. You know, oftentimes we hear the argument of, well, just leave the area, go move to a more liberal area. But That's how, not an option for yeah. all of us. Not, not everybody can do that. Like, you especially can just... our disabled siblings. Yeah. Like, that's one of the things that I didn't understand the response to, like, Katrina. Like, when Hurricane Katrina went through, a lot of people were like, well, why didn't they just move? You can't. It's the same thing. Like, you, you mm -hmm. can't uproot everything. One, your employment is over there. Two, your history is over there. Three, mm -hmm. the cost. Like, moving alone, you need to have several, like, try to get a, try to get a, an apartment anywhere. It's going to take deposits first, last month rents in some instances, like moving from say Louisiana, where your uh, cost of living is way lower than say somewhere like, Oh, what was it? Seattle, where it's a requirement by law that you have X amount of money. Like their deposits yep. are normally five grand. Like somebody from Louisiana is not going to have five grand to move to there. Like, and that's not even like that's that. not even getting into the fact that even moving to areas like that, I have friends who are trans feminine who live in Seattle and they still get harassed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I live in California. Just last I, night, one of like, my oh. black trans femme friends was harassed by police in Seattle. It is not a guaranteed safety. There are fundamental issues that we need to address, not only as the queer community, but as society, that what is inherently safe for one person is not safe for another person. Oh, yeah. Like, people, people, like, when I post the happenings, like, literally, my last, I think it was either last week or two weeks ago, somebody knifed my car. Uh, like I posted pictures of it on Facebook. They took a, a knife to my car um, completely. They did over 3000 worth of damage. Right. And they told my roommate it's because the tranny dresses provocatively. And like, I, I know this person, this person was a neighbor, <sighs> a religious, very religious, devout Christian. And every time I'd see them, the most I would say is a salutation, like hello or good morning, because I recognize that they weren't, you know, about this life. So I would go out of my way to avoid them. But even me avoiding them still left uh, apparently an impact to the point to where that same day, this person went back to my car to deflate my tires and I had to break their arm. Oh. Yeah. That's absolutely. And then literally the next day while getting... Um, I went, my, my roommate drinks and I'm okay with buying her alcohol. I bought some soda for myself because I don't drink and some whiskey for her. And while in the line, I had somebody try to sing to me, dude looks like a lady. And I'm like, Oh, daddy, you know, I love it when you serenade me <laughs> girlfriend. And he got very embarrassed and his girlfriend started laughing and he got upset. And it's like, daddy, you don't want this attention, and why are you singing to me? Oh, like... it's like my husband and I. I'm married to a cisgendered man. We're both queer. Um, we have been called the F slur several times in public when we're together. Even whenever I'm not dressed particularly masculine, just because if you're not looking at me from the front, you're not gonna expect 
tits, but <laughs> uh, but it's we'll just we were just walking one day in our local area, and I hear some probably hillbilly motherfucker pop up and go, "Oh, look at them faggots," and I'm like. Bro, I'm just living my life. Why yeah, is my life your business? Well, and like, that's why I recognize, like, for me, since I do have this, like, physique still, um, mm -hmm. I do have disabilities, but they're not of the physical realm. So, or at least not apparent from my physicality. So whenever somebody, like, says something or does something or gets confrontational, to me, it's hard for me not to, like, respond in equal, like, measure to whatever they're coming at. Like, if you come at oh, me yeah. with a level of energy, I will match that energy. I never try to exceed it because at that point, it's just me, you know, breaking some random person's arm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I get that too. Like, people will literally, you'll you'll just be existing in a space, not minding, like, just minding your own business, not harming anyone else, not interfering with anyone else, and it happens. And it's weird, especially for, I'd imagine for your case, because I have some, some trans mass friends who, when they're with their husband, they'll be told like, "Oh, um, they'll you know they'll get they'll get called faggot, they'll get called gay, all that stuff." Mm -hmm. Then immediately afterwards, they're like, "Well, you're not a man," and it's like, "But you just which way do you want it? Oh, which way do you yeah. want it?" <laughs> yeah, it gets crazy. Well, it gets it just gets so out there that you're just like, "Wait, you just they're they're not a man, but they're also a faggot." Okay, all right. Do you want me to pop them in the mouth? Because I know you're very timid. And you're non-confrontational, but I got <laughs> to these mics. I got a backup mic right here. Well, even like back in 2020, I helped organize protests for Black Lives Matter. There was one of the protests I was at, which I was doing more of like a parenting role because the main organizers I was just helping out were teenagers and they were getting harassed by the counter protesters. And I was like stepping into things. And this lady whips at me and she's like, go back to wherever you're from. And I'm like, lady, my ancestors are from here. Are yours? <laughs> That's my favorite. Go back to where you came from. <laughs> my ancestors didn't get to choose. Y'all brought us on a boat. We were like, hmm, wow, these savannas are fucking fantastic. And your people were like, well, oh. and they do really well in the sun. Another time, it's really sad that we all have so many harassment stories, but as an example, as a disabled person of being harassed, I was having a really bad pain day and two of my partners, I have three partners, um, two of my partners decided to take me out to the local mall, Athena knows which one it is, and we took my wheelchair because I wasn't feeling up for walking, so they were pushing me, and some random person starts yelling, why are you in a wheelchair? Why do you need a wheelchair? what is the purpose of you being in a wheelchair and making a big deal about it? And I had to stop one of my partners because she's pregnant. And I'm like, no, don't go get in a fight right now. It's not worth it. Let's just walk away. <laughs> why, why am I in a wheelchair? Why is it your fucking business? Like, why exactly. are in a fucking wheelchair? Shove off, bitch. Each week on the Trans Narrative Podcast, we want to highlight a piece of the bigger stories that impact our lives, the laws and attitudes and cultures that can help or hinder us as transgender people in the United States. 
stories that cisgender people want to tell for us or about us are going to be missing in critical details. They won't help us to clear up our perspective. We want to show how we've struggled, how we are struggling, and also how we will overcome. talk about especially uh, we've already kind of touched upon it it is in regards to the uh, senate bill 357 repeal in um california now as you know a lot of laws have been used to in a roundabout way harass trans women trans women of color um in a, in the same regard that they like to point out that this is for the children in this instance it's for morality it's oh we built we built this law to prevent as they called it, prostitution. And that's how it's being framed now is this is the repeal of this law is making a red light district is what they're claiming. And the only people claiming this are the people on the right. Um, a lot of Republican senators and whatnot are claiming that California is legalizing prostitution or as us um, more aware people refer to it, sex work. But the thing that they're referring to is something that's always been there ever since FOSFA came along and prevented an online community involving sex work and more criminalized the middle person between um, somebody who is providing the service and somebody paying for it. Um, with this new bill, what's going on is they're saying that they're seeing an increase in loitering for prostitution is its legal term. And that's not the case. All that's happening is people are still dressing the same. There's just complaints about, oh, this is indecent. I, I'm seeing naked people on my way to church. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm practically naked most of the time. And it's, it's nothing to do with this bill. This bill was used to hinder trans women walking down the street. It's been used against me. It's been used against others. It was, oh, you look too pretty, you are dressed up, and you're walking in an area that is a high prostitution area. So we're going to investigate you. We need your ID. We need to know what you're doing here, where you're going. If you have money on you, we might seize that. They, they will literally seize your phone, laptops, computers, because they believe that you are doing some escort work just walking down the street. And... With the repeal of this bit, with the repeal of this bill, it's making it better for people like myself to be able to walk down just normal daylight on a busy strip. I'm not doing anything escort wise. I might just be going to a club and now I'm not going to get harassed because this thing has been repealed. But as with anything that is for trans or the trans community, this has come under fire as Fox News tries to say, oh, no. Again, California is making a red light district. And that's not the case. You're going to see all types of just out there stuff on the news. Um, they did some interviews about um, the level of people that they picked up for prostitution recently. But what they won't tell you is that none of that was related. A lot of this stuff of people getting picked up for prostitution was in these, these sweeps that they've been doing for sex traffickers. And that's what they're also tying us back to. By repealing this law that, that no longer hinders trans people walking down the street, supposedly this is somehow increasing the level of sex trafficking in the area. And that's not the case. We know from the RAIN Institution that it's actually been an increase due to the FOSA Act, due to the stuff that's been changing. They've made it to where you can no longer monetize whatever wares you're selling via the internet. 
And that's come to another issue is that in these sweeps and raids of the known sex traffickers and people who visit uh, escorts as well as the escorts, they found that a lot of these people who are being forced in, in, into it, um, they're not being forced into it by trans people, which is another thing that a lot of conservatives will like to say for trans people are supposedly pedophiles, sex traffickers, degenerates, aka whatever negative connotation that you can bring or any just scum of the of the earth type people we are supposedly it out of all the people that were arrested um there was sheriffs there were preachers there were youth pastors but none of the people who were forcing people to do sex work were trans now that's not saying there isn't tra shitty trans people out there but this narrative that it's just trans people doing these shitty actions and are morally morally uh reprehensible it's just not really the case. One of the things that uh, people are saying is that because we repealed this, um, it's led to an increase in prostitution and human traf trafficking. But that wasn't the case. We, there's actual metrics by the RAIN Institute as to what actually increases uh, prostitution and human trafficking. The reason we repealed this law is because a lot of police officers were using it to harass trans women and trans women, mainly trans women of color, that they were claiming we were all escorts just walking down the street. And... Um, with this new law being repealed, now you have places like Fox News harping that it is uh, the g degeneracy of the left. We're making a red light district in um, uh, San Francisco and all this other just nonsense. But really, the thing the thing is, is when they do these like dragnets, they typically find at least one cop. Um, in the most recent one, they found a cop, a pastor, a, a youth pastor, a priest and some other people who are just more related to the right than they are the left i.e you know a, you don't really see a lot of left-leaning pastors and you don't really see a lot of left-leaning priests and that's what i was getting at so, so let's kind of maybe talk about like just how sex work is is treated by the right and the left and it's very much that you know the the right are just as much inclined to use sex workers as anybody else uh, everybody oh, yeah. pretty well, much equally does have that but the right almost exclusively criticizes them from a moral high ground. But from well, the left, like we get like more on the liberal side, we get this kind of sympathetic, like smallest yeah. violin kind of stories playing. So, you know, I, I don't know, like uh, where oh, my, I find myself and I don't find myself really wanting to purchase or, or partake in a sex market or anything like that. But I feel well, like it's a legitimate uh, space. For it that. is. Yeah, because it is like during the heyday of like Backpage, Red Book, all this other stuff that was out there. You could make like 10 grand in one night doing it. And, you know, like 10 grand a night, maybe actually working a little bit. It was it was worth it. But the vast majority of people who would come through are those right-leaning people, those people who are like, oh, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be seen with you out in town, but here's the money, break my back like a lame horse. And I, I don't, I, I recognize that term is ableist. That's just literally what the guy had said, break my back like a lame horse. And I'm like, gross. <laughs> I'm going to have to live with that. I'm going to have to try and ejaculate to that visual metaphor. <laughs> yeah, like, a lot of them were right Back that people. back like a glow stick. <laughs> yeah, like, they could have come up with anything other than these sort of um, weird comments, but, you know, the right doesn't know how to meme, nor does it know how to make humor. 
And it was like, you can call them out. Like that was one of the things is like, you know, kind of educating them. You're more of a therapist than anything when you do that sort of line of work. But it was like, yeah, that's, I don't like that phrasing because one, don't really like the word lame. Two, why would you want to put an animal into something that you're coming to pay sexually? Two, uh, three, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So it's something that I'll, I'll harp on further is how it's more along the lines of the left sees it as, you know, it's a way, it's, it's not that it's a way of life. It's just you're providing something as long as it was two consenting adults because well, it's, hmm? it's, kind of i would view it as like les miserables right it's like oh the poor lady must go into prostitution and and it's just this pity story pity story like it's really really ancient uh and it's actually like also fundamental to certain religions like early on in human experience like the the way that we restrict our our interactions in, in in modern life don't make a whole lot of sense and they're no. very much from like a moral high ground that doesn't i don't Existing think has a lot more? of substance yeah i don't yeah. think it really does but i'd have to like have to really deep dive into trying to find some kind of moral convictions around it because like every time i go into a conversation with my wife about it i come back thinking well, no she's she's right they really we should just go ahead and make sure that people who do sex work are protected <laughs> you oh know, yeah and, and no no that's able to thing. unionize yeah that's the big thing that uh, the Rain Institute talks about is that uh, if you really want to get cut down on human trafficking, legalization is definitely the route. Um, because right now, if you are a sex worker and you're trafficked into it, you can go to jail. Um, that, sure, you're the person who is uh, the target, the victim of it. And they provide very little in resources. They give like oh, a yeah. kit that's like $20 worth of a toothbrush and, you know, this and that, right? Yeah, they, they give you a, t a kit. They give you a class. You have to, you basically are having to pay for this class too. And most people in sex work are doing it, not necessarily, most of them aren't doing it for the money in the sense of like, oh, it's destitute. It's more along the lines of like, oh, 10 grand as opposed to working, like one of them was literally, one of the people I knew was a mom who worked at McDonald's during the day. And she was like, I can make minimum wage and try to support a family of four, or I can do that plus this, so I have my health care paid, but I can do this on the side and make like 10 grand in a night. It's an easy option here. Which am I going to go with? Do I want my kids to go to college? Like those, those big questions that corporations are no longer answering for you. Like we, we, uh, you know, if the, the question I think would be if, if we legalize it, like how much would that detract from the actual value? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, because it's a very hyperinflated uh, market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like imagine, imagine working 15 minutes and you're, you could literally put out there 15 minutes and it's, you know, $450 for a 15 minute, like whatever. Like the only people I know who can do that are people with, um, what are those degrees? Doctorates uh, in yeah. law. Oh, I'm my, my psychiatrist makes like $450 an hour. I know as an engineer, I don't, but you know, back in the day, that's how people would pay their way through college. To me, it was no different than the people who stripped their way through college or did porn to their way through college. You're providing a service for people who obviously have a market for it. As long as there's consent involved and there's no children, because children cannot consent, um, 
to me, as long as there's protection on stuff, and as you know, someone who kind of knows the area, there was a lot of people testing because you're not trying to bring that home to your family. The biggest problem with prostitution, I think we will find in America at the very fundamental root is that we can't tax it easily Yeah. enough. Yeah, that's I to me that's honestly the only reason why it's probably still considered illegal is because the the only way to to put a tax on it is through the Bardello system that um Nevada uses where you have an establishment and it's the only legal place that you can actually um sell your wares and that's how they do it. They're like, "Oh, um if you want to do this, you have to let the government know and fill out these forms basically." And yeah, that's the only way they could do it. And it still has a lot of loss because one of the reasons that people don't tell you about that being a, a, a scummy operation is um, a lot of those security guards would get like tokens. And those tokens are basically you're providing the service to them for free. And in a place like Nevada, since uh, everywhere else, it's kind of like illegal. Um, it's place it's price is so much more uh, inflated over there. Like, The same service goes from instead of like 450 to a thousand, it'll be like a thousand to like five grand. Um, and, you know, when somebody's paying with their token, their security guards paying with a token after making really terrible comments, typically don't get the option to just be like, no, like that's that's 10 grand that's being turned down. And to me, that one's a lot less crap or a lot more crappy because, again, consent is king, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, uh, consent and autonomy. We are already selling our bodies to capitalists on the hour, most of us. So we should be able to do what we want with that. And if we are safe and healthy with it, they are our bodies. <laughs> they, they, there should be no like, you know, uh, no right. Um, So, Torin, besides the fantastic name, um, after hearing uh, the stuff that we've talked about, and I obviously agree with you wholeheartedly on like a multiple multitude of things, I eat all of it. Um, I just wanted to know, like, what are you? What are your views as to what the I ideal outcome should be? Like, uh, we obviously know that this shouldn't be something. This shouldn't be an onus of the person who's disabled to. explain to like able-bodied people same as like trans people shouldn't have to explain things to cis people but we do um because you know honestly it's a lot of emotional effort and it, it's something that should be taught in school but isn't so what would you say would be your ideal goal like to happen in the world Well, obviously, there's always going to be that, like, end-game ideal of people not having to explain themselves constantly and people just being accepting of, hey, this person has different needs than me, and that's okay. Um, obviously, that starts with education, not only through the schools, because we know that the public school system is going to flub that one up, Oh, but... yes. Um, It starts with education from parents, and as a parent myself, that's something that I feel strongly about is teaching your children, hey, there are different people in the world, and all their bodies are different, and all of their lived experiences are different, and you should be kind to people because of that. Even if they're not kind to you, as long as they're not actively harming you, you should go into the world with this outlook of compassion and understanding. And if more people... could do that which i know is a struggle in this day and age i feel like that would make life for disabled people people of color 
trans people, queer people, all these marginalized communities much better. We have to build the future based off of our empathy for each other. Um, and like in, in the Constitution, it says we hold these self truths, these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yeah, that's all gender and all of that. But it's the fact that we hold these truths is that what's important. That if we don't hold to them, that all of us are important and have an individual value, then it'll slip away. There's there's mm -hmm. no truth to that in the universe unless we hold it. Uh, and And speaking out our stories letting us know each other's perspectives and not minimizing the pain and struggles we go through is vital to building that empathy. And you'd say, so normally another question I like to ask is how one would go about achieving that in their own regard. And in this, in, in, in this instance, it sounds like you're already doing that by teaching your children, um, basically how, what you'd want to see in the world. Like you're being the change that you want to see. I know a lot of people quote that to Gandhi. I don't know if that person said that. I know mm -hmm. Gandhi was very problematic on several different <laughs> cards um but you'd kind of say that that's what you're you're basically doing the thing that you 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 want to see in the world you're teaching your children like hey like come at this with a, with empathy and understanding yes and i also both of my children are neurodivergent like i am my son has adhd and my daughter is autistic so they themselves view the world differently and the world views them differently because of things that they cannot control. So it's been a big deal for my partners and I to teach them, hey, you're different too, but all of our differences make it a good thing. You need difference. It's the spice of life. But you can still be kind even when the world is not kind itself because we all know that the world can be a real son of a bitch. Yeah, I like to call it the um, the world may be a cold and uncaring place, but that doesn't mean we can't work together to build a fucking fire and ward off that cold because fuck the universe. Yes, exactly. And uh, a big part of that also is I'm raising my children with the uh, do no harm, take no shit. Mm -hmm. I live that motto. I'm not a, I'm a, I'm not out to hurt you, but if you do something to hurt me, just expect a broken arm. Yes. And obviously, even as a parent, every day is a new day of growth. I won't say that I had my life, my shit together my whole life. I was raised by my mother's white conservative family. You can guess how that went for me. And it's a learning experience for myself every day of, oh, this isn't a perspective I thought about before. Oh, this isn't part of that perspective that I thought about before. I need to change how I think about this now. And being willing to constantly be growing and learning and changing, I think, is a big part of the mindset that needs to happen for people. It's okay to be wrong. You know, just don't be a dickhead about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind, especially after you've learning more, learned more. Mm -hmm. um, oh, um, uh, well, and you've, you've kind of answered my my last question that I typically like to ask and relate towards the person themselves, such as the, um, uh, would you be okay with essentially the fruits of your labor, you know, kind of coming to fruition after you've passed away? Like, you know, we do all these things, but we might not see, you know, the, them come to fruition until we're, you know, well, long and buried. Like in this instance, you're already doing that. But in the event that it doesn't go, you know, as planned, 
how would you feel about that? It's it's a really good question. I it would be painful would be a good word for it. I won't say disappointing because that's not exactly right. Painful is a better word. Like to spend my time trying to make a difference and raising my children to be open-minded individuals, raising them to be caring and compassionate even when the world isn't and you know spending so much time even working on myself to see that nothing has changed it it would be a painful experience for me honestly There's been a lot of like history that is kind of like that, though, like just movements that have come to a small uprising and then been kind of turned under because of historical realities or whatever. Mm -hmm. In some way, I feel like we're living in the start of a post-scarcity society, but also at the start of a real scarcity society. Mm -hmm. If we can like, you know, get to a Star Trek world, then it won't be a problem to acknowledge and recognize and integrate with people with disabilities. But the more we limit our ability to have a sustainable world, the more cruel and brutal it's going to become like mm -hmm. by its own nature. Um, so being conscious of the, the ways in which we're uh, expending our resources on the least capable now, it will always come down to affecting us as individuals will always at one point be the least capable uh, individual in a society. What we mm -hmm. do now for those people is what forges our reality for our children and demonstrating that empathy as a virtue, as a value, as something to be, uh, you know, replicated and uh, endorsed. Uh, you know, that's, that's my dream. And if we don't see changes in the legislation, we do see changes in the family and friends and people around us. I've seen that mm -hmm. over time and it's not universal. There are always gaps and there will always be children who are ignorant and people who are foolish. And, uh, but, mm -hmm. but time does allow us as individuals to grow and see maybe some of the bigger frames in which uh, discrimination or bias or mistreatment where those came from. And it usually is like some other form of mistreatment uh, mm -hmm. back in the day. So it's just abuse begets abuse and empathy and understanding. Hopefully, hopefully begets empathy and understanding. Yes. What would you like to see for yourself and the community at large in the next five to 10 years? In the next five to 10 years? I'd like to see a little more conscientiousness towards our actions, what is said, you know, general language. There's still a lot of ableist language that is used. Um, I'd like to see more thought put into accessibility for pride events. I'd like to see more opportunities for our immunocompromised siblings. I'd like to see us get some goddamn peace <laughs> to be honest because i don't know about anyone else but with as many different fights as i have just to be able to exist i'm very tired and i wish that we could all get some rest 
and respite and just some peace and be able to live our lives to our fullest and our happiest, you know, I, that's probably asking a lot, but <laughs> that that's, that's my greatest hope is just for people to be able to exist and not deal with hatred and not deal with being scapegoats for a bigoted agenda. Speaking of conscientious, when when we go out to the world, what would you like those that don't uh, have disabilities, what would you like them to consider as they go about their everyday life and, and don't deal with the challenges that, that you and, and others, millions of others deal with every day? Honestly, I wish that more people would consider the fact that at some point in their lives, they too will be disabled. Athena touched on it earlier, and it's honestly accurate. It's really just a matter of time. As our bodies get older, they are going to wear down, break down. It's just a fact. So just because someone is younger, why be rude to them because they're using a mobility aid? Why give people dirty looks in the store because they're using one of those carts? You know, just be a little more kind, you know, which I know is asking a lot also, but I wish that people would just be a little more kind, honestly, and also that they would consider that it's not easy being disabled and you notice the looks, you notice the whispers, and that weighs really heavily on you. And, you know, people make elderly jokes and all that all the time. And it, it's not much different being disabled at a young age. You get the jokes, you get the comments, you get the snarky assholes. And just everybody is going to end up there at some point. You don't know when. You could have a freak app accident happen and then all of a sudden, bam, you're disabled. You could have, out of nowhere, an autoimmune disorder pop up. It's not uncommon for people, as they age, to have these things pop up. And it can happen to anyone at any age. So just be kind, be considerate, and just... Yeah, just just be kind. It's hard to ask, and it's a lot to ask, I know, especially on shitty days. We've all got shit going on, but being polite, holding the door for someone, using a walker, you know, offering to help someone reach something from a shelf, just those little things like that can make someone's day so much better. Corn, Riley Bowen, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for spending time with us this afternoon. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk about all these issues and spend time with some lovely ladies. People, people act like consent is like this ugly thing to me. It's like a huge turn on. Like when my husband like asks me before he does things, you know, as a pillow prince. 
I like to be pampered. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, ask me before you do something to pamper me. It's perfect. <laughs> but especially yeah. when you have sex like a Klingon, it's very important to know that I am not <laughs> salting somebody. I'd rather be known as a bitch for asking, hey, are you okay? Hey, can we go forward with this? And definitely not be an actual sexual assaulter because A, fuck sexual assaulters. Not like that, but like they're terrible people. <laughs> Today's episode was recorded on February 11th, 2023 via Zoom. Today's show was co-hosted by Athena Permakis, Caroline Penny, and Lucy Balsano. Today's guest was Torn Riley Bowen, capturing the narrative segment brought to you this week by Lucy Balsano. This episode was edited and produced by Caroline Penny. Research provided by Athena Permakis. Music provided by Infraction Music titled Good Vibe. Capturing narrative segment, music, and the music you hear now are produced by Athena Permakis. This episode of the Trans Narrative Podcast was brought to you by Anchor, the easiest way to upload a podcast. Thank you for supporting this show. For more details about this episode, go to the description linked below. You can find us on Facebook, Apple, Google, Spotify, and now YouTube at the Trans Narrative Podcast subscription for exclusive content available, be sure to go to anchor.fm slash transnarrative. New episodes release every Saturday at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you'd like to reach out to learn more, be a guest, or are looking to get involved with the show, email us at transnarrativepodcast at gmail.com. That's transnarrativepodcast at gmail.com. See you soon.